Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 337th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Danica Waddell. Danica is the president and founder of Xena Financial Planning, a virtual advisory firm that advises 40 client households of women in technology and supports more than $275,000 in ongoing revenue. What's unique about Danica's path, though, is how she launched her own independent RA, not out of a desire to be an entrepreneurial business owner, but because an IAR registration filing error by her prior firm left Danica with no fault of her own, unable to be compensated for working for clients for an extended period of time, for which the fastest way to begin working again was to launch her own firm and register herself instead. In this episode, we talk in depth about the path of how a state regulatory audit of Danica's former firm revealed that she was not properly registered with the state of Washington and sparked an investigation during which she was prevented from working from her own clients and sidelined for several months. How on top of not being able to work with her current clients, Danica also found that during the investigation, she was not allowed to be compensated anything beyond her base salary or for any kind of work with clients, even for prior clients, which ultimately cut her total revenue-based compensation by about 50%. And how even though Danica's former firm quickly registered her upon learning of the error, she realized that the only way to work with clients would be to either wait an indeterminate amount of time till the state's investigation was over or leave the firm, which ultimately led her to launch her own firm so that she could get paid and work with clients again and and maintain more control of her own registration and career in the future. We also talk about how Danica's former career in corporate finance and a number of tech startups inspired her to work with women in tech as she realized she really understood the financial issues they faced and by being specifically niche-focused, she could create more repeatable processes and would be easier to scale the business over time. How Danica drove rapid growth for her firm by leveraging volunteering at industry associations to connect with other advisors and centers of influence, for whom Danica then created a one-page reference document to help her connections refer more of her ideal clients. And how instead of using a traditional client portal or vault, Danica creates personalized private Google sites for each client to centralize all their documents and links to the various logins in one central place for easy access. And be certain to listen to the end where Danica shares how even though she hadn't originally intended to become an advisory firm owner, she feels it was the better move for her as she kept getting pushed outside of her comfort zone and it helped her personally evolve and become more energized and comfortable embracing curiosity. How Danica has dealt with the unexpected reality of loneliness as a solo advisor by embracing mastermind groups and industry communities to build deeper, more profound relationships with our advisors and gain some other insights along the way. And why Danica believes that joining local industry associations, connecting with like-minded advisors, and finding a mentor can be especially valuable for younger, newer advisors to develop their own communities early on as a foundation to navigate a better long-term career path for themselves. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Danica Waddell. Welcome, Danica Waddell, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I'm excited to be here. I'm I'm really looking forward to today's conversation and the 
to me, what what's an interesting evolution that I I, I know you, like journey that I know you've gotten to have of how you ended out in a world where you ultimately became an independent and advisor and, and built your own firm. You know, when I when I look at like the I don't know, I'll call it like the the traditional archetype of the independent advisor, particularly one that goes so far as hanging their own shingle as a uh, as an independent RIA. It's usually something to the effect of, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to see my clients served a certain way and I wanted to provide them certain services. And like I wanted to charge them a certain way. And I worked at some other firm and they really wouldn't let me serve my clients the way I wanted to serve them. Or like I had this compliance department that was the department of no, or like my leadership just wouldn't let me do the thing or the direction I wanted to do. And so out of like sheer frustration and this like bold vision of what I think the future can be, I went out and like made an independent firm and planted my flag. And, and like when we look back particularly over like early years of XY planning network and such, like we saw so many advisors that kind of joined in that mold. Like I just I want to I want to serve who I want, the way I want, and charge what I want, do it my way. And my old firm won't let me do it. So darn it, I'm gonna hang my own <laughs> shingle and do it myself. But but that's not everyone. Uh you know, sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances where, yeah, I wasn't necessarily looking at like hanging my own shingle because I wanted to be an entrepreneur, life happened and this was th thrust upon me. And and I know you, you've lived a version of this journey, this kind of like, uh, you know, reluctant entrepreneur uh, where, where, where this was forced upon you instead of uh, being a like, you know, long-term vision choice journey that you, that you move towards. And so I'm, I'm excited today just to talk about, I guess, this dynamic where maybe you, uh, you know, what is it like when you're not seeking like independence to launch your own firm from scratch it's like thrust upon you from life and suddenly you find yourself in that circumstance mm -hmm. yeah I, I definitely do not consider myself a natural entrepreneur so you're quite right that I've had a a bit of an unusual path to land where I am today so I think to get us started uh uh, just share with us a little bit about the advisory firm as it exists today, and then and then I do want to go back and understand like how did how did we get here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Xena Financial Planning is the name of the firm, and I launched the firm in July of 2020, so not quite three years in. Um, at this stage, we have just over 40 clients. So I think we're at 41. Um, about 275k of recurring revenue, and that's all flat fee. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about fees um, later on. And then our niche is women in the tech industry. Okay. And is it you on your own? How are you building a team around you? Like, what does it look like to be able to staff to support 40 clients and 275 plus of, of recurring revenue? Mm -hmm. Right now, it's me as the main advisor, and then I do have one full-time employee who's been with me for almost two years, um, and she's an associate advisor. She's working on her CFP and will hopefully take clients at some point in the future. I do expect us to grow, but at this point, we do have we do have some capacity for sure. Okay, so so we'll I want to dig in a little bit more later of just what this like flat fee model looks like in women in tech and 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 what the service offering looks like uh but now like so help us understand a little bit more like how did you come to this point of i'm going to go launch my firm and generally it ultimately has been a, a pretty fast growth path like two, 275 of recurring revenue in three years actually mm -hmm. phenomenally uh rapid growth path but mm -hmm. how, how did you land in this world 
Yeah, great question. Like I said, it's a bit of a circuitous path, but I'm a career changer. So I got into the industry about nine years ago. And at my prior firm, I was at a firm for about four, a little more than four years. Um, just, and it happened just about three years ago. So early 2020, you know, the pandemic was just sort of taking off. <laughs> um, and um, the firm that I was working at was audited by the state of Washington. So the Washington DFI, Department of Financial Institutions, um, conducted an audit. And so this one is of the- just state registered firm. So yes. you know, federal state folks registered. at SEC, state registered. Mm-hmm. If you're in Washington, income your Washington regulators. Yep. Yep. Okay. That's exactly right. So we're um, audited by the state of Washington. One of the things that they uncovered pretty quickly was that um, my U4 was never filed properly. So um, they kind of came to the firm and said, whoa, you know, we're, we're still in the midst of this audit, but, you know, this is this is pretty significant. And in while we conduct this investigation, um, Danica is not permitted to kind of work with clients, that sort of thing. So um, that happened in February of 2020. So I just want to make sure I'm, I'm like processing sort of timing sequence here. So so they come in to do the examination. I'm assuming like basically first thing on the auditor's process is like, <laughs> let's pull the list of advisors registered for huh. the, with the firm. And then let's look huh. at who's actually serving clients and like make sure these le- these lists match. And it turns out they don't because the firm never filed your U4, which which I guess effectively means the, like the regulators have just come in and said, Danica, you're operating as an unregistered advisor. It's like you're 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 serving clients and you are not registered because yep. your U4 was not filed. So the first thing they say is, uh, you know, we're still investigating, but for the time being, like you can't talk to clients anymore mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you're yep. not registered. That's exactly okay. what happened. And I had been working with clients, you know, for three was, and a half years. So. It's like how long have you been working with clients at this point? <laughs> yeah. So you're you're so you're you're years into clients, and I guess I was going to ask like what the nature of the role was with the firm. Because as you said, you had career change in and you mm-hmm. were and you were building up. So were like were you in a paraplanner associate support kind of role or were you a like full on advisor? Like no, you had your own clients. And I was a lead advisor. Yep. I was a lead. Mm-hmm. So you're a lead advisor who suddenly is not allowed to talk mm-hmm. to your own clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. it was it was a really stressful um, experience because as as many of us can remember back to February and March of 2020, not only was the pandemic happening, but markets were going crazy and people were really really stressed out, and it was it was a a, oh. a difficult time in that you know I could see. Um, emails coming in from clients, and I was not allowed to respond to them. Yeah, I just now it's connecting back of just the, the timing of all of this. So literally, like the regulators have just told you you're not allowed to talk to your clients in February of 2020, mm-hmm. heading mm-hmm. into March as the world goes bonkers. Yep, yep. It was it was pretty bad timing. <laughs> so so like I mean, just what was your reality at the like your you're going to the office every day, but you basically just have to sit there and twiddle your mm-hmm. thumbs and like mm-hmm. coach the other advisors of like, here's what's going on in Bob's situation as Bob calls you and wants to talk to you, even though I'm not allowed to talk to Bob. Like I can tell you right. what's going on with Bob and you're like feeding them, <laughs> feeding other yeah. advisors in real time. Like what's the scoop on this client as they take the calls from your clients? 
Yeah, I ended up doing some just kind of operation stuff because I really wasn't, not only was I not uh, permitted to communicate with my clients, but I wasn't really supposed to be doing any client-related work at all. So it wasn't even a matter of like, oh, I can do this project and then somebody else can, you know, present it or something like that. It really wasn't supposed to be doing anything client-related. So I ended up just doing some, you know, website kind of updates and those sorts of things that just weren't related to client stuff at all. Oh, man. So, uh, and all of this essentially stems from just, I guess, either the firm internally or whoever they were working with on on compliance, like just someone literally did the paperwork wrong or forgot to do certain paperwork to just actually make you an official IAR with the firm. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think they did the paperwork, but they forgot to submit the payment. And and so it just got canceled. (laughs) And um yeah, so that that was essentially what happened. It was just, you know, an, an administrative error. These things happen probably more often than we know, but it was not caught for, you know, three and a half years until the audit happened. So I guess I'm even wondering just like the the attitude and interaction with the auditors at that point. So like, mm-hmm. I feel like I, I hear that and I'm just, I'm envisioning this like, the auditors found you have an unregistered advisor and like, let the, let the fines begin while we talk about jail time. Like that's, Mm -hmm. I know Mm -hmm. it's not really at that level of gravity, but like, that's usually I find where a lot of our heads go very quickly. Like it is terrifying if you realize you're actually on the wrong side of a regulator and just trying to figure out like how much trouble am I in and how permanently may this damage my career or, or not. Mm -hmm. So like, I guess I just even wondering, I mean, how were they treating it? Like, it sounds like they were kind of treating it as, okay, I think we understand this is may just be an administrative, like paperwork issue. And not that you're literally trying to operate an unregistered business, but we need you to sit on the sidelines until all this gets figured out. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, because this was three years ago, I mean, my memory of it has faded quite a lot. And I, 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 I do recall at the time thinking that my career may very well be over. I didn't really think I was going <laughs> to face anything like jail time, but yeah, I didn't yeah, I mean, think like, there was going to be yeah. <laughs> real ramifications that, that could, you know, be a permanent mark on my record, all this kind of stuff. I really didn't know how that was going to play out. And it was very scary. Um, and it lasted for almost three months um, of this just very uncertain time. Um, again, the world seemed to be kind of crashing down around me anyway. And I remember at the time thinking like, who cares about COVID? My career is basically coming to an end. Like this is much bigger. You know, I just, I could barely even think about, you know, what was happening with the pandemic because I was so um just you know, f- focused on what was happening and really unsure about what my future looked like. So, but help me understand. Like, I'm presuming just if what this comes down to is, oh my gosh, like I can't believe we made the mistake and we forgot to make the payment with the U four. We couldn't. Like, granted, I don't. Even I've not lived like the exact details of what this is like going through Washington State's process in particular, because every state's a little bit different. But I'm envisioning like. They come in and tell you this on Monday, isn't like so Tuesday at nine a.m. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. all the paperwork's in and the checks written, just like okay, like we're getting it fixed immediately. Like, can you approve us on Wednesday and get this done? Because we all want to be in compliance. Like, what yeah. what took three months to get it sorted out? 
Right. Well, they did actually, my, the firm did register me immediately. And so, you know, you can go on FINRA or yeah. broker check now and see, you know, February, I don't know, 19th or something of 2020, all of a sudden I'm registered. Um, and unfortunately the state said, well, we really need to understand kind of what wow. happened here. And I, I remember at a certain point, I mean, it had been kind of dragging on and I was getting very frustrated and I actually called DFI myself and said, so if I got a job at another firm tomorrow, I could work directly with clients, right? And they said, oh, yeah, like, you know, there's no reason why you can't interact with clients in general. It's just that we're in this investigation process. And so we want you to kind of put a pause on your current clients. Um, Um, Which, which I guess basically I read as at this point, it's not actually about you. Like you got mm-hmm. registered so you can go work for another firm tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is actually more of like this is a supervisory issue for the firm at this mm-hmm. point that the mm-hmm. company is that, – that the regulators are basically saying, well, we're not confident in your firm's compliance processes and procedures since this mm-hmm. happened in the first place and they didn't <laughs> notice. So uh, mm-hmm. like – we're glad you've gotten registered. You're fine, but we can't let you operate under a firm that wasn't exercising proper supervision until we make sure that you know. I don't know there's like that there isn't fire where there's smoke, right? That like that this firm doesn't have other compliance issues because uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure from the regulator end, like sometimes people make honest mistakes and sometimes it's a total compliance mm-hmm. train wreck. And the first thing you find is the first of many things you find. So if mm-hmm. I'm a regulator, I guess like I'm. I'm hunting now to find out whether there's <laughs> fire underlying the smoke. So, mm-hmm. so then I say, uh, 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 you've got to pause while we figure this out. Mm-hmm. So they're like, th- so that that's the context of how they put you in the holding tank. Yeah, and I think I mean this was many weeks into the process when I had that conversation with them, but that was the start of my process of sort of saying, hmm, if I could leave tomorrow. And work with clients at another firm, whether it's my own or an existing firm, what's to prevent me from doing that? Um, and how attached am I to staying at this firm where, you know, I had been I had been very happy up until that point. Um, but I thought, hmm, is this really is this really where I want to be long term? And so that really started me thinking about what my other options were. So just out of curiosity, was the was the firm otherwise still like paying like are you still on the payroll (laughs) like Mm. trying to operate because they're trying to keep you around or is this now already rippling in other ways for the firm because i'm sure from their end they're like well someone else has to take care of your clients while you can't grant it's our fault like someone has to take care of the clients while you can't i'm imagining this this starts getting awkward for the firm as well Oh, it was very awkward for the firm, no doubt about it. I, um, I, the way that my compensation was structured at that time was a base salary and then a variable component that was tied to client work and production, basically. And so DFI also said um, I was allowed to get my base salary, but I could not be compensated for any client work, even projects oh. that I had already completed and already delivered. Um, so yeah, my, my pay was cut by about 50% while the investigation was happening. I guess I never even thought of like the indirect ramp because I like if you happen to be a hundred percent salary plus bonus, it's kind of hard for them to unwrap that. When you happen mm-hmm. to be base salary plus percentage of revenue of mm-hmm. clients, it's mm-hmm. ironically very straightforward for the regular to say like, "Well, you can't have the client comp part." Yep. Yep. That was pretty painful as well. I mean, I'm very fortunate that my partner makes, you know, a, a very 
very good salary and we were, we were fine. Um, but that was also really stressful that, you know, suddenly my compensation again, and it was, this was for projects I had already delivered. I was not allowed to be compensated for those. Right. Cause I mean, just like ongoing, like clients I, you know, built up and brought to the firm one or many mm-hmm. years ago, that's just common, common, a component of comp for a lot of advisors. So, so basically like the firm has cut your comp by 50%, not even necessarily their choice. This is the regulators right. kind of plowing through on it, mm-hmm. but every, everybody's still stuck in this bucket, which I guess then just makes it all the more awkward for the firm because they're like, yeah, we didn't want to cut your pay, but now we are not even allowed to keep paying you Yeah, what we were while we fixed this thing that we accidentally kind of messed up. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was just a ginormous mess um, from, from pretty much everybody's perspective. Um, I don't yeah. think it was pleasant for anybody to go through. No, I would, I would really imagine not. So- <laughs> So, so I guess, like, how does this play out? I mean, I'm still assuming at some point you're going through this and you're like, okay, but I am registered now. And at some point, the firm, like, we get through this state audit eventually. I mean, at some point, mm-hmm. the auditors just want to go on and find another firm as well to mm-hmm. investigate. They don't, they don't want to set a permanent shop in, in, in your office indefinitely. So, I presume, like, there's some implication that eventually this will come to an end mm-hmm. and maybe, and maybe hopefully we get to, to move on again. So like, how does this play out where you are also starting to think like, well, do I want to stay here until this resolves? Or do I want to go somewhere else? Do I need to go somewhere else? Like, how were you thinking through that in the in the moment as you're trying to process all this? I think for the first, certainly for the first few weeks, I was very much of the mind that yes, this this too shall pass, you know, we will move on and things will just kind of go back to the way that they were. And at some point that started to shift. So probably around two months or so into this process, it, again, it was a very unpleasant <laughs> period of time. Um, very stressful, very traumatic, you know, not being able to support my clients through this period. You know, it, it was very hard. And so it, I think it was a bit of a gradual shift, but over a period of a few weeks, I started to think, you know, maybe I need to really consider what my other options are here. Like, you know, I mean, I don't know how long this is going to go on. Is it going to take six months? Is it going to take three months? I just, nobody seemed to know. And as I sort of looked around at, you know, I looked around at other firms in the Seattle area and thought maybe I should just go get another job. And I considered launching my own firm and, you know, certainly had seen a lot of people do that. Um, through XYPN and and other um, other avenues, and so you know, it, it, I would say it sort of percolated for a few weeks, and then at a certain point, I just was I, my mind was made up, and I just said, you know, I, I really, I really cannot remain at this firm anymore. And within, I mean, I gave notice, um, you know, it was about ten weeks into the process, and two days after. The, you know, the state came back to the firm and said, okay, we're all done with the investigation. And, you know, my old boss called me right away and said, we would be more than happy to have you back. Like, you know, we, you know we're so sorry about all this. And, you know, if, if you're still willing, it's not too late. Um, do you want to come back? And I said, no, I, I, you know, that, that ship has sailed. This is, this is done. Well, yeah, I guess at some point just like once you make up your mind, like the reversal of it is just even more tiring and stressful than yeah. just like the ship has sailed. I just have to mm-hmm. move to the next next stage of of life. Yeah, exactly. So, so what had you decided? Like, what at the point that you gave notice, did you know where you were going and what you were going to do next, or was it just like I, I just can't stay here? Mm-hmm. Like, I just I 
it can't continue in this state. I'm going to give notice and then I'm going to go find what's next. Yeah, it all kind of came to a head over a weekend. And so over the course of that weekend, I basically went to my husband and I said, look, this is, I'm, I'm absolutely done. I'm going to give notice on Monday. I'm going to launch a firm. I think I joined XYPN over the weekend. I might have even registered with the state of, not uh, registered, but incorporated with the state okay. of Washington over the weekend. You know, I filed um, a, a business license or whatever. And I, I can remember my husband really, you know, he was supportive, but he said, do you think maybe you could kind of think this through a little bit and maybe maybe take your time? And I said, no, I'm really, I'm 100% convinced that this is the direction that I want to go in. So I was, I knew I was going to launch a firm and had already taken some of those first few steps to do that. So I guess just, so I'm, I just, I'm fascinated by the shift from I'm in an employee model and I'm fine and comfortable in an employee yeah. model to mm-hmm. 10 weeks later, not nine and a half weeks later. Yeah. Um, like I, I can't stay in this anymore and I'm not even going to another firm. I'm just going to launch my own. Like mm-hmm. what, I guess I'm trying to say, like, what was the shift of, and I'm just going to go launch my own instead of simply like trying to find another advisory firm. I mean, Seattle's pretty right. dense. Like, there are mm-hmm. some other firms around, like some parts of the country. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. there's basically no other RIA within 30 miles of me. But you, yeah. like, you got some firm density there, so presumably there's at least some choices. Mm-hmm. How do you end out in a world of saying I don't want to go to another firm? I'm going to mm-hmm. hang my own shingle, even though that hadn't originally been a plan. I think there were two main factors that went into that for me. So one of them was just kind of looking around and seeing what else there was in in my market. And, you know, a lot of ultra high net worth focused firms and that sort of thing, very high minimums. And I just was thinking, you know, if I'm going to make this big change, that doesn't that's not really the population that I want to serve. And I don't know, there just, there wasn't anything really compelling um, in terms of other firms to work for. And then the other part of it, perhaps even more significant was, you know, part of my realization, I think, of going through this process was that I just assumed that, you know, working for a firm that's already established is kind of the safe thing to do. Like Mm. starting a firm is very risky, but here I was doing the safe, you know, very traditional path of just, you know, being a worker bee. And I realized that, oh, gee, this is not as safe as I thought. And um, I just came to this conclusion that I, I do not want to be anyone else's employee. I do not want my fate to be dependent on somebody else filing the correct paperwork. Like I want to be in charge of my own stuff. And so I think I just, you know, sort of crossed over this point where it was like, I I don't ever want to be an employee again. So that was the real driver. I think (laughs) was just an interesting framing (laughs) of like the established firm is supposed to be safer and stable, right? Like clients, infrastructure, service, um, mm-hmm. compliance support, mm-hmm. uh, some level of base salary and like going out on your own is supposed to be the risky thing. And then suddenly you're in a realm of like, or mm-hmm. I don't want my fate to be determined by someone else's mm-hmm. ability to properly file the paperwork. Yeah. Like that's a, that's a, that's a striking, like that's just, that's a striking shift. It, it reminds me like, uh, Alan Moore used to make a comment like that of like how he ended out in an independent realm that was basically like the the first time he went through a job and got and got fired because mm-hmm. uh, granted mm-hmm. he's a little too independent minded so tough <laughs> tough, tough employee but mm-hmm. the 
the the comment he basically made at the at the time like granted he may have been a little wired for entrepreneurship always but the comment he made at the time was like you know i i watched my salary my income like go to zero and get snuffed out in a moment because mm-hmm. someone else made the decision mm-hmm. that like i was not a good fit for the firm it was like granted they might have been right but <laughs> Uh, like it was just like that was terrifying to me that uh-huh. my livelihood can end in a moment because someone else makes that call. Like it's one thing if I say, "Hey, I'm not a good fit here. I'm going to move on." But like uh-huh. the fact that they could say that to me, and then my life is now like immediately turned and shifted. It was like I just don't like not having that level of control over these outcomes. Like I need to be more in control of my own fate. Oh yeah, that's that. It was exactly my process, and um, you know, going through that whole audit experience very much led me to, you know, what I th- I think it's time for me to do my own thing, and I want to be in control, and I want to know that things are getting filed correctly, and all of the above. So that was exactly exactly where I was coming from. So so as you then make this transition, like, what was the vision when you were launching the firm? As you've said now. Xena Financial Planning is focused on on women in tech. Like, was that the vision out of the gate? Like, this is where I want to go, and this is who I want to serve. And if I'm going to control my own fate, then like, this is the, this is the hill I'm going to die on of the clients mm-hmm. that I want to serve. Did Pretty you have that close. clarity? Um, it wasn't quite that refined when I first launched. I mean, I definitely knew I wanted to prioritize working with women. Um, but of course women, you know, working with women isn't really a niche. Um, and you know, the tech industry is something that I'm very, very comfortable with. My husband works in tech. Um, you know, there's just so much of it in Seattle. So I'd worked with plenty of people from all the big tech firms over the years already. So I, I had a lot of familiarity and comfort level there. And it's something that I really enjoy. So that was part of the initial plan. But I also, when I first launched, had um, women business owners as, you know, sort of another Mm. aspect of my niche. And that one ended up just sort of falling away pretty quickly, I think, because I just didn't really, I wasn't as excited about it, to be honest. And, you know, the planning issues that come up for business owners and people in tech aren't really that similar. so I just found from a scalability perspective, it just made so much more sense to focus on one of those. And women in tech was the obvious choice just because it was something that I I was more interested in, I was more excited about, um, and it just it just seemed to come more naturally for me. So I'm I'm struck by the comment you made there that uh like the issues weren't that similar. And so having just one was would be more scalable because just a lot of people that I hear that ultimately decide I want to go down to a particular niche is like because I can I can market more focus. It's, you know, like I uh-huh. I had a I had a women in tech uh, meetup at the same time as a business owners networking event, and I had to pick one because they were at the same time, and so like I I picked one and that, <laughs> became, and that became my one. Like at some uh-huh. point the the marketing time and energy starts to conflict, but I'm struck uh-huh. that. You framed this as no, no, picking just one was more scalable. So, can you explain that further? Like, what, how did that hone you in? 
Yeah, I think it's just about, you know, having kind of a repeatable process and sort of knowing what your client is going through. So, you know, a lot of my website, marketing, content, all that stuff is really about answering what are the questions that my clients are asking, right? What are the sorts of things that are on the minds of women in tech? And so, you know, it's very easy for me to come up with a short list because I hear them all the time from my clients, but to really focus on that and then to create, you know, tools and deliverables that really address those needs, right? And so when I'm working with people in tech, it's around, you know, the tax implications of, you know, all their different equity comp and their, you know, maybe there's a liquidity event coming coming, and all of these things are very different from, say, the cash flow challenges of a business owner. And so the templates and all of the things that I was creating were just much more targeted to the tech persona or avatar. And that just made it a lot easier to sort of I was doing a lot of the same work, basically, um, versus the business owners who were kind of like, what sort of retirement plan should I set up? And just very different um, questions and concerns from that type of uh, population. What is striking me for a lot of firms that I hear saying it's, you know, it's so hard to scale advice and like I'm struggling with creating repeatable systems and and processes for financial planning because I like every client's needs are different. I'm like, well... Uh Unless you pick all one type of client, <laughs> and then their and then their needs aren't that different. Like you know, we we try to come up with repeatable systems for for a very wide range of clientele. Whereas, as you're noting, like if you just pick one particular type of clientele that have the same sorts of problems over and over again, then like they all basically need the same thing, and then mm-hmm. it gets a lot easier to be repeatable. Like you know, mm-hmm. the options analysis is different, but you can make an options analysis spreadsheet because all of them need it. Exactly. I mean, there's always variation, right? Every single company's benefits package is different and every right. IPO is different and all of that. But yes, the the spreadsheets and the the templates and all of that can be can be the same and then you customize them as needed. Well, and I'll I'll give a shout out as well um that I I I was particularly struck just looking at your at your website mm-hmm. and how you actually present this. So, uh uh, we'll put a link out into the into the show notes for this. This is episode three hundred and thirty seven. So if you go to kitsis dot com slash three three seven, we'll have a a link out to the the services page for the website. But you know, you click on services. And I mean, for most advisory firms, I find you click on services, and you, you know, we provide comprehensive financial planning and individual wealth management, and you know, we cover insurance and estate and retirement and taxes and right, like we 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 cover the domains and we we kind of list out the areas. And just I'm fascinated by your services page. Like you click service services, and up comes this like three by three grid of of pictures, like a people's faces looking back at you, almost sort of like Brady Bunch style, but mm-hmm. looking very nice and professional. <laughs> uh, and 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 each one is a face that's saying like, when should I exercise my stock options? Mm-hmm. I wish I knew how to negotiate my salary and equity compensation. Mm-hmm. I need a strategy for managing my RSU income. Mm-hmm. Uh, my company is going public. Help. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm burnt out on tech. Can I afford to take a sabbatical? And and just it strikes me like you know these are right. These are questions that almost any of us as advisors can help with an answer. Like bring me mm-hmm. a client with these issues. I will do the analysis. I will gather the data. I can provide recommendations. But it's a whole other level of powerful when someone comes to the website and like these are their questions because these are the questions and challenges of women in tech and you just see 
the faces of nine women looking back at you ask literally saying these questions and it's like oh these are my questions and this is like this is what i see when i go to the services page okay apparently this firm like really does serve people exactly like me who are struggling with these exact same challenges and apparently this firm knows exactly what they're doing Mm -hmm. because their services are literally the questions i'm asking yeah and i mean i don't need to tell you about the power of a niche but i mean i get people all of the time in a prospect meeting who say you know i went to your website and i feel seen i I, you get me um and that is so powerful to just have somebody come in and and be ready to go they just you know feel 100 percent like this is this is exactly what i need so so where did it come from to do women in tech and women business owners in the first place was this uh like you were initially excited for both and then one just kind of wanes it went was this uh more of a i'm starting and i just need to cast my net <laughs> a little wider cuz oh my gosh i need some revenue like one of those yeah. I'm just wondering yeah. like where did it come from it was definitely kind of like a i don't want to i don't want to be too narrow and exclude people and i thought well i'm a woman business owner like surely i can relate to other mm-hmm. women business owners and the challenges that they're dealing with and and that is largely true. Um, but I just didn't feel as connected to that for some reason. It just, you know, the sort of actual financial issues that people are navigating as business owners just wasn't as interesting to me. Um, and so, yeah, I think initially it was very much just cast a wide net and, you know, see kind of what works. Um, and the women in tech thing, just not only do I find it more interesting and I find it a little bit, I don't know if it's quite easier, but in many ways just felt more natural to me, but it, it also just really resonated. Like, you know, those people showed up and it was like, okay, well, I guess I've, I've got enough of a market here that I don't need to do the business owner thing as well. So out of curiosity, how, how long did it take to get to that moment? I mean, was that like, and two years later, I finally took down the women business owners part or, or is this more like, yeah. And three months in, it was just clear to me. Oh yeah. Within six months for sure. I mean, a lot of things became clear to me really early on because I think just right out of the gate, you know, people, however they found the website, people came to the website, they were excited, they wanted to sign up. And I just had a lot of demand kind of from day one. And so it was pretty quick where I could say, you know, I mean, I don't know if I actually formally took a lot of the language off the website right away, but probably within six to nine months, I, I lost that whole business owner focus. And and was women in tech your background as well? I mean, you said you were a career changer. Like, okay. were you a career changer from tech or something else? Kind of, yes, kind of no. I'm not a tech person, so I don't, I'm not a developer, an engineer, or anything like that. But I did, um, kind of corporate finance and accounting. And I did work in several startups, um, you know, that were, you know, I was the only non-engineer basically in a couple different companies and, or maybe not the only one, but um, I definitely worked at companies that, you know, had stock options and I went through a you know, an M&A transaction in one company where we got acquired by Hewlett Packard. And I did, and I administered the stock plans. So it ended up being kind of an interesting um, background to sort of translate to to the work that I do now. So I did have some exposure, but I don't really consider myself a tech person. So, so you said like you had a good amount of demand pretty much from day one. So where did the, where did the demand come from? I mean, was this like prior cl- like clients from the prior firm that that came with you or were following you? Or, or is this starting entirely from scratch with new marketing that just got traction quickly? 
Mm-hmm. There was some, uh, there were some clients from my prior firm that followed me. I was not allowed to contact them, of course, but people were able to track me down. Um, one thing that's, I think, worth pointing out is my prior firm was 100% hourly. And so there was no kind of like book of business or recurring revenue or anything like that. Um, so some people did follow me. I want to say maybe a third ish of the clients that I worked with in the first year, like 25% to a third um, were people that I'd worked with in the past. But a lot were referrals from um, other advisors, centers of influence. Um, yeah. And, and just marketing. Yeah. So just kind of getting my name out there. Um, got a lot of press, press stuff pretty early on and that led to quite a bit of traffic. So yeah, it was a variety of factors that um, I think led to some pretty significant traffic. So can you share a little bit more of that? Like this, what were you doing to actually get other advisors to start sending referrals, actually get COIs to send you referrals, like actually Mm -hmm. get press when you're Mm -hmm. still getting going in the first few months? Like what were you doing that was actually making that traction show up? Yeah, I'll put a plug in here for um, volunteer work. So I have done several years on the local FPA board, including um, a year as the president. I'm now on a NAPFA board. And one of the results of that is I know a lot of advisors in the Seattle area. So people people know me, they remember me from that time. And because there's so many people in our area that have high minimums, Um, I've gotten referrals for years from other advisors who just don't know where to send someone that doesn't have a million or $2 million in investable assets. So I already had a pretty good network of people that would somewhat regularly send me prospects that didn't meet their minimums. And I basically just parlayed that into, hey, I've launched a new firm. This is who I'm working with. You know, this is my new contact information. Send people, send people here. Oh, because even if the prior firm was hourly, you were already living in a world where uh, the other firms that have high minimums who who need to send clients someplace, you were already, like you already had built some relationships to be on the receiving end of those referrals. In the and yes. the hourly world now, it's just hey, I've got a new firm. It's not hourly, but it's complexity fees for women in tech who maybe mm-hmm. don't have a big portfolio yet for you to manage to fit your business. You you can send the, these these uh, uh, these leads my way instead. Mm-hmm. And when I launched, I actually was hourly, and I mostly did that for you know just sort of ease of registration in Washington State. But I had the exact same model as my prior firm, so it was yes, it was still hourly, and so that's a very appealing thing for advisors to have you know re- referrals that they can send people to. And it's like I'm really sorry that we're not a good fit, but hey, here's Danica's website. Why don't you go talk talk to her? And so I was just able to sort of pivot and say you know don't send me every single person that doesn't meet your minimums. But, um, you know, these are the types of clients that I'm looking for. Well, I was going to say, when when you're in that early stage and you also just, you, you've you launched and you want any revenue coming in, uh, when you were going to these advisors and saying you've relaunched, like how women in tech or women in tech plus women in business owners, were you focusing then? Like, were you talking about that kind of niche and focus out of the gate? Or was it like, I just, I've launched my own hourly firm. So- 
please. Any, anything yeah. you can send would be greatly appreciated. No, I, I was definitely letting people know what the niche was. And I actually, I have a one pager that I put together that's just, you know, makes it very easy. And I will share that with other advisors and say, you know, it just has some basics about my fee structure, who I work with, the typical um, types of issues that my clients are facing, what my background and training is, you know, just a lot of things that someone might be wondering about um, about my firm before they send potential clients my way. So that's an, another thing that's really nice is, you know, if somebody sends someone to me and it's, you know, a retiree, I'll say, thank you so much for the referral, but hey, here's this reference <laughs> reference page for you to keep on hand. And if you're wondering whether or not to send someone my way, you can very easily determine by looking at this page whether or not they would be a good fit. Well, I, I appreciate your willingness to share that. So I guess so we'll we'll post it to show notes. So again, folks who are listening, this is episode 337. So if you go to kitsis.com slash three three seven and go to the show notes area, we'll we'll have a link out to the the one pager uh uh I guess sort of views for marketing referral mm-hmm. purposes. Mm-hmm. Sure. All right. Very cool. Very cool. So uh so I guess so that starts to drive the Advisor referrals, I guess, as well as the COI referrals. I'm assuming at this point mm-hmm. that you had some COI relationships. You you just just in air quotes, like you just get to go back to them and say, "Hey, I'm doing a new thing, and and here's what it is, and here's what I'm doing." Yep, exactly. Yeah, so I just sort of re, you know updated everybody. Hey, just in case you were wondering, I've now got my own firm, and and shared that same one pager with them, and um, yeah, just sort of uh, rekindled a lot of those COI relationships. That maybe I hadn't talked to recently, and you know that sort of thing. Okay, very cool. And then what? What was the marketing? You said you, or sorry, the press. You said you got some some good press coverage out of the gate. Where did that come from, or how did that come about? Yeah, I mean that was really just a function of you know the XYPN and NAPFA emails that I get. I think I get at least a couple a day about potential, you know, opportunities to be quoted in the media. Okay. Um, and I had a few of those pretty early on, a New York Times ones and uh, New York Times one in particular that generated lots of lots of prospects came from that particular quote. Um, but a few like that. And it was just nice to be able to have, you know, I'm a brand new business. It's nice to be able to have some of that stuff on your website um, from the get-go. Interesting. So it's kind of this combination of I had been on the board of FPA, so I had a lot of advisor connections there to generate referrals. I had some COI relationships from the prior firm, so I could go back to them with the story. Then I'm a NAPFA and XY Client Network member, so I'm getting some media leads from them. That's filling mm-hmm. out the like the press side, so I can put you know press social proof mentions on my website. And so all those all those different pieces then come together combined with, and I'm I'm here for women in tech. And a mm-hmm. services page that speaks to them really, really clearly. Yeah, and I think the website itself is um, somewhat unique. I mean, there's a lot more interesting websites out there now than there used to be. But certainly, when people come to the website, I mean, they have to find it. But once they get there, I feel that many, many people are um, pretty aware that there's something a little different here. And oh, these colors! I don't, I don't usually see pink and purple on an advisor's website. And um, I do feel like the website generally. Has has um, a positive impact. You know, pe- people find that people find other content that I put out there, whether it's podcast interviews or whatever, and they're like, "Yeah, I, I saw something that you put out over on Instagram, and and yeah, I really I really liked what you had to say." So all of that stuff is really um, accumulating and definitely contributes to just you know 
again, I don't know that it's necessarily helping people find me, but once they do, there's lots of ways that people can sort of verify that they like, they like my style, I guess. So was this like a big investment for you out of the gate as you're, as you're getting going that like you have to stand up a, you know, a big fancy website with custom design work to be able to tell this story? Mm -hmm. I mean, the website costs $7,500, and I think her prices have probably increased since uh, we worked together, which seemed like a pretty big investment at the time. I probably could have done it myself or hired somebody for a lot cheaper, and I just thought, you know, I kind of want to do this right. Um, I don't really want to just put something up there and then, you know, have to redo it in a year or two. Um, so I did definitely spend more upfront than I probably needed to, but I think it's more than paid for itself. And, and out of curiosity, who did you work with to do it? Um, her name is Karen Haggard. So K, KH Design, I think, is the um, name of her firm, but okay. happy to share lots of, I know lots, she does lots of financial advisor websites. Okay. We'll, we'll make sure we, we get a link out to her website in the, in the show notes mm-hmm. as well. So, so I'm curious now to understand more of the, the business model fee evolution. Because you, you had said at the beginning, you run a, like a, a flat fee model that adjusts based mm-hmm. on complexity. But then you also mentioned, oh, when we launched, we were like straight hourly, I guess, replicating the old model and just trying to get, get things going. So share with us the, the fee evolution. I guess like you know, where, where it started, where it is now, and like what you yeah. went through along the way to get from here to there. Yeah, I don't even know if I'm done. I mean, I feel like this is a journey that just people are constantly evolving and figuring out what what works best and and how to serve their clients and all the rest of it. But hourly seemed like the easiest um, thing to do. For the state of Washington is definitely one of the more awkward um, from a regulatory standpoint, and so it really it would it came down to hourly or AUM, um, and I just I, I, I'm not a huge fan of charging based on. Uh, a percentage of assets that doesn't really align with how I want to serve clients. And so I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just start with hourly. We'll see how that goes. And, you know, I did that exclusively for a year and a half and there's so many challenges with hourly. And in some ways I love hourly. It's like, well, if somebody's more complex, you spend more time, you get to charge them more, but it's just so transactional. And I really found there were just too many limitations and, um, you know, went through a lot of different possibilities and sort of came to the conclusion that doing something like a flat fee with investment management included was um, was the direction I wanted to go. And so I launched that January 1st of 2022. So we're a little more than a year into offering that as the primary service. So, so how did that... All right. So I got a lot of questions. Um, so what what did it launch at when you rolled that out? Let me start there. Like what what was the fee when you went, okay, we're going flat fee ongoing starting January 2022? Yeah, it hasn't really changed. So I started it at $6,000 for an individual and $7,500 for a couple. And then that could increase if there was, you know, a lot of complexity. In reality, I haven't really done a whole lot of that, um, but I'm, I'm definitely switching my systems up a little bit because at the beginning, I was just sort of saying, yep, 7500 for a couple. And then I would get this couple that would sign on and it was like, oh my gosh, there's so much here. I've way underbid <laughs> or underquoted mm-hmm. this project or this um, 
you know, this fee. And so I'm having to definitely get more information up front and, and quote appropriately. Um, but it hasn't really changed since I launched. So yeah, that's the flat fee. And then say for the individual, if it's $6,000, that includes 600,000 of assets that I will manage included in that fee. Once it crosses over 600K, it goes to a percentage. And then same thing for the couple. Once they cross over 750K, then it goes to a percentage. But you know, there's, there is at least a, a good chunk of assets that are included um, in the flat fee. And and so essentially, like once someone has a greater than six hundred or seven hundred fifty thousand respectively portfolio, they they essentially convert into or graduate into an AUM model with mm-hmm. you. Yep, exactly. And then what is that AUM fee? I mean, I'm guessing it starts at one percent since that's your six hundred k to six thousand yes. crossover. Yes, it starts at one percent, and then at a million, it goes to seventy five basis points, and that's that's it. It's very very simple. So, so I guess functionally, it this sort of operates as like an AUM model with a flat fee minimum, but you market it more as like a flat fee for services. And if your portfolio mm-hmm. grows above a certain size, then like we have an additional layer of fees for mm-hmm. the additional portfolio management services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I don't know. There's, you know, we could probably spend all day talking about fees. What I like about the flat fee is that it's predictable. You know, it's very, it's very clear. Um, nobody's wondering, you know, is my fee going to go up or down as mm-hmm. my portfolio size changes or whatever. Um, and many of my clients don't meet those thresholds, right? So some of my clients either have, you know, a significant right. amount tied up in their company stock, or you know, maybe they work for a private company and there is no liquidity or something, but. Many Many of my clients are, are well under those thresholds. Um, and so I think the flat fee um, just it tells the right story about what our services are. And I don't want people to put too much value on the investment management piece. And so that's why um, that's why that exists that way. So so as you converted into this model. Um, if your clients historically had been coming to you on an hourly basis, were there like hourly clients who came and re-upped into this? Or is this almost like the hourly clients are transactional and walk away once they're done as you convert to this? Like it's just only new clients from here into the model and that you had to drive all like all of that growth since the conversion in January of 2022. Mm -hmm. Many of my hourly clients definitely said, no, thank you. We've loved working with you, but this is not, you know, this this model doesn't work for us or we're not interested or whatever. Um, and many of them did convert. So, you know, it was sort of a mix. I don't know the exact percentage, um, but I would say less than half of the hourly clients mm-hmm. converted over. Because also, if, if we sort of looked at a, a calendar year and how many hours my average client was was, you know, was taking like the sort of things that they needed from us. Um, many of them just didn't have the complexity to warrant, right. you know, paying. It was, it was a higher fee than what they were paying basically. Right. Um, so, so it was a mix. I mean, some people definitely came over um, to the new model and, and quite a few said um, no, thank you. But it has been interesting to see 
you know, even people that I worked with at my prior firm and now work with um, in my current firm. And so these are people I've maybe worked with over many years. And really, they came to the prior firm because there wasn't investment management, right? That was one of the appeals was like, no, I just want hourly advice. And to see the number of those people that have now said, actually, we do want investment management is pretty, (laughs) pretty interesting. Because I think one of the things that, you know, is so obvious is, years after working with people, they still haven't made a lot of the changes that we were recommending, you know, five, six years ago. And it's like, they finally said, okay, we accept the fact that we're actually just not going to follow through here. And we need your help. Interesting. Uh, Because after they work with you for a while, the trust builds up on the other end that Mm -hmm. like some clients are really DIY and some clients aren't really DIY. They've just had so many awful experiences with the financial services industry that they don't trust us until Mm -hmm. eventually you work with them enough that they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or what's happened with, I, I can think of at least a couple different um, client households where they were DIYers when they started working with me and now they've got kids and they're, you know, their their lives have just become much more complex. And I said, we don't have time for this anymore. And we, we'd like to outsource this now. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is especially powerful when you're working with younger folks who are upwardly mobile in wealth, who are upwardly mobile in careers. It's just mm-hmm. like they're, you know, you're not hitting them at peak complexity. It is what it is. I either pay for help with this complexity or not. You might be hitting them earlier in the complexity growth curves. Like they have enough complexity that they want help and then their lives get more complex. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we trust you and this is getting painful. Like, why don't, why don't you just do more of this for, for us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the one of my oldest clients or longest term clients, I guess, you know, kind of came to me. I think they were in their early 30s, both worked in tech, had done a pretty good amount of savings, but like not a lot of complexity. But that very first year it was, and this was at my old firm, the very first year it was, we want to buy a house. And we kind of went through the whole exercise of how much they could afford and how they would pay for it. And then the next year it was, you know, one of us wants to start a firm and what does that look like? And how much, you know, how can we live on one salary? And then the year after that, it was having a baby. And now um, I'm still working with them and the, the husband just sold his firm. And so now there's all sorts of complexity around um, you know, the, the transaction and the, the tax implications and QSBS and all kinds of fun stuff, but really seeing, you know, the, the changes that they've gone through and their complexity has gotten so much more um, significant over the last few years. So, so help us understand now what, you know, you've got this core model of $6,000 minimum fee for individuals, $7,500 for, for couples as they add AUM. Uh, eventually they hit an assets or management crossover, but for a lot of folks, like they don't have much or any assets because they're they're not liquid yet. Uh, but you're charging fees and you're serving them. So help us understand, like, what do you do? What do you do uh-huh. uh, for this six six thousand seventy five hundred dollar fee for a client? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um. In the first year, we our intention is to meet with clients five times. So there's there's quite a lot of work in the early stages. We do go through the um, kinder process. So we have a pretty intensive process at the beginning of getting to know a, 
a couple or an individual around their values and what's important to them and really structuring their whole financial life around that. So it's not so simple as just kind of, you know, plugging a bunch of numbers into right capital and running some reports and going, yeah, this looks good. You just need to increase your savings rate a couple percent. I mean, we really are doing a lot of um, qualitative work with our clients. Um, But I think a lot of the same things that many other people are doing, you know, we're doing pretty in-depth, comprehensive planning. We're helping a lot with implementation, which I think is somewhat of a differentiator. I mean, I know a lot of people do that, but there are still many, many firms that don't. So we really are helping people actually take the steps to um, follow through on whether it's getting life insurance or adjusting their withholding. Like we do all that stuff with people. Um, So it's a pretty intensive process, certainly in the first year. So. So can you walk us through like just what, like what is the five meeting process? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The first four are pretty well established. So, and we try to do those, I'd say roughly a month apart. So we first start working with somebody, say four initial meetings. And the first meeting is definitely just really kind of a get to know you goals, exploration, start of the kinder process. Um, and, you know, kind of getting a high level overview of where they stand. The second meeting is mostly cash flow. So we, again, go pretty far in the weeds on cash flow with people. So that's a pretty, um, pretty focused meeting on that topic. And then meeting three is, um, scenario planning, right capital. We um, just started doing um, private websites for our clients, and that is a um, huge thanks to Mike Zung, who's been um, you know leading the charge on a lot of really cool things that he's doing with his what, clients. Mm-hmm. What what is that? What is what are private websites? It is. I mean, it's like a hub or some kind of you know centralized location for clients to sort of come to get you know, all of the work that we're doing together. So for instance, we use Google Drive with our clients so they can kind of come to this website and it is, it's a Google site. So you have to be signed into your Google account to view it. So it's private in the sense of, you know, if I'm, if it's a site for Michael Kitsis and I'm not signed into michaelkitsis at gmail.com, I can't access it. So you have to be signed into your Google account to view your page. And then, you know, there's, links to everything that we're doing, our meeting notes, some of the reports that we're working on. There's just a lot of, um, a lot of the, it's, it's essentially kind of like the one page plan with, um, with a a few more supporting documents that go behind that. Um, But the clients have been loving it. So, you know, we're really, what we do in that meeting three is introduce that site. And we basically say, you know, if you bookmark nothing else, you know, bookmark this page and, you know, the links to schedule, you know, Calendly links are here. The, you know, send us an email, find Right Capital, find Schwab. Everything should be pretty centrally located there. And any recommendations we make, any links that we share to other sites, all that kind of stuff, it's all in, it's all in one place, basically. So, all right, so I, I have all sort of question about this. I'm, I'm fascinated by this framework. So, like, what's the difference between this and just using a client portal from one of the like 472 pieces of advisory software that have a portal. Yeah. Like my financial planning software has a portal. My mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, my investment management platform has a portal. I can buy standalone portals. I feel like soon like my portals will have sub portals. Like there's portals everywhere and you're using none of yeah. them. So yeah. like, <laughs> what, like what does this do that's 
so different or better that you're not using anybody else's portal, you're using this instead. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we hear from clients all the time is I had to go through so many of my emails from you to find something. And the idea is that they don't ever have to go through their emails. It's all in this place. And what I find with like, say, Right Capital, that's great for certain things. But let's say they want to go to our cash flow worksheet, which lives in Google Drive. Or let's say that they want to log into Schwab or they want to schedule an appointment with me and they can't find the Calendly link. All of that would be in one place. Mm. So the portals are great. I mean, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of a lot of the work that Right Capital and some of these other providers are are doing. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't house all of the work that we're doing together, even the meeting notes, right? So let's say, for instance, um, I tell somebody, you know, hey, here's this estate planning attorney I think you should contact. Um, You know, they're perfect for your situation, blah, blah, blah. And then they say, well, I know you sent me their information, but I just can't find it. That would be on this website. Here's the link to the estate planning attorney we recommended. So it really would be everything that they need in one place. So like, it's like a like a website page that's a central reference of all the things that they might need or want to click on or look up or come back to. Yeah. Yeah. So help me understand again, the exact setup. So this is through Google sites Mm -hmm. where each, I mean, like you're literally like you're making a web page, like you're coding a web page. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So, so are you just like your, uh, you're HTML savvy that you can like get in there and do some some basic design work and make this work without having it be too time consuming and cumbersome. I'm not terribly savvy in that way. And again, Mike has been super generous with me. I mean, Mike's a good friend, but he's sort of shared his version of this with me. And we've, you know, customized it to have our colors and our logos and our, you know, all of the different things that that Um, that we use um, in our practice. So, you know, for instance, um, we use the software Nudge, which reminds people about things that we've recommended that they do. And so, you know, that's another thing that they, you know, I I know you sent me a reminder about something, but I can't find it. They would also be able to, so we're sort of customizing to the client, but we have a, so we have a template that's, you know, just sort of the generic um, version and when we when we create one for our, a specific client, it takes probably an hour to two hours, depending on how much is happening for that client to just sort of set up the site for them. So it's it's I mean it's time consuming, but it's not um, it's not a huge lift. Okay, so there's like a a standard template mm-hmm. for for the client uh, or like just for any client, and mm-hmm. so you get to design that once with colors and logos and style and such. Right. And I'm sure like, you know, section labels or however you've laid Mm -hmm. it out. So then it's each new client comes aboard like, okay, well, the Calendly link's already pre-populated because that's standard for everyone. Uh, But like, oh, this is the client's latest financial plan. So let's actually Mm -hmm. like upload that and and Mm -hmm. link it in. So you create it and then it's just like a sharing process the same way that Google is pretty good at controlling access permissions yes. like in the same way i might share a word doc to someone mm-hmm. well, not a word doc a google doc to someone mm-hmm. uh i can share a google site with someone the same way so they get it through their their gmail address link it up and then they can log in and see it and bookmark it exactly yep Inter- interesting and uh okay and so as you're maintaining the relationship on an ongoing basis uh, like you've got to periodically log in and like make updates to their 
Google mm-hmm. site client pages, like you do new things or post a new copy of the plan or roll out a new piece of software that they got to log into. Correct. Correct. So unfortunately, it is pretty manual. And I would love to have more of the site that sort of automatically updates. There's a couple things that are linked to like a chart in Google Sheets. And so if that chart chart gets updated, then it will automatically update on the website. But a lot of it is manual. Um, And because we've just started doing this this year, I'm not quite sure what our frequency will be on updating. Um, but yes, we will definitely have to go in, you know, at least, at least once or twice a year and, and just sort of manually update certain parts. So, uh, so I'm sorry, like very cool, but like I diverted us a little bit. So you were taking (laughs) us through meeting process, like meeting number one is goals exploration. Meeting Mm -hmm. number two is getting into the weeds and cash flow. And I Mm -hmm. guess in that context, like, is there tech you're using for that? Or are you just like tell them to bring in whatever the rest best estimates are for cash flow like how do you, how do you actually yeah. get into that with clients yeah we I mean, we use a google sheet that we share with clients and then we just ask them to whatever system they use you know if they use wineab or mint or some other app tracking system whatever they might or maybe they don't use anything um, but if they can kind of you know try and fill in as much detail. I mean, we do a lot of it ourselves. So we'll do the mortgage and their pay stubs and all that kind of stuff. But we're really looking for um, discretionary expenses from the client. Um, And then, um, and, and, you know, I mean, cash flow is just one of those things. I think we all struggle with finding a system that, that works for people and that's accurate and all the rest of it. And so that's, you know, we're, I'd say a little bit of a work in progress where we're always, um, we're always learning from, you know, different, different clients, what they, what they bring to the table and, and how we can improve on that process. But it's essentially a Google sheet. And, and so just sort of like a, well, I was going to say a budget layout, but I guess not, mm-hmm. not budgets. Like we're, this isn't necessarily at the prescribe them a budget recommendation of what they should be spending. This is at the, like, we're just trying to understand where the money literally is going right now. Just can you, yes. can you document and record this and help us understand yep. where the money's going? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, exactly. Is cash flow recommendations then like part of the planning process and what you recommend? Like, is this building up to a budget or spending plan you're then going to bring back to them? Or is this really more functionally about just like gathering data to understand Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, we're going to try to help you make a better budget? Well, I mean, it really varies. So, you know, a lot of times knowing what people are spending and knowing how much they're saving and we kind of go, yeah, this this looks great. We get to meeting three and we, we look at right capital and scenario planning and it's like, yeah, you're doing a great job. Everything looks really good and, you know, you have lots of options. And other times we might get to that meeting three with that initial spending data and say, hmm, <laughs> maybe, maybe we need to make some adjustments. So, I mean, it really depends on, on the client situation, but it's certainly... I, th- I feel it's critical information to really do any kind of um, planning work for clients. And then many times, you know, there isn't really a whole lot that the client needs to change. And, and there are plenty of times when that's not the case where we say, you know, we really need to adjust something here because this is not a sustainable path. So then meeting three is scenario planning. So I guess at this point, mm-hmm. like we're looking at, hey, you've said you uh, want to quit your tech job next year and start a new business. So we've, you know, estimated the after-tax liquidation of your RSUs and here's what you'll have. And then like, we're projecting out the scenario. Let's look how it goes. And like, okay. you're, you're just getting like, let's look at some of the scenarios that you've been wanting to plan around and see how it's going. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's, I'm, so is that like 
print a plan and bring a plan in or is that you know let's turn on right capital and a screen share and we're just going to start doing some of this live oh yeah no i'm definitely a screen share let's let's get okay. into the weeds on this together let's you know really i really want the client's participation in this part of the process um, and i i in almost all aspects of financial planning it's pretty rare that i will show up with like a you know something to present and you know it's all laminated and bound and <laughs> no no it's like okay we're we're doing this together um, so it's definitely more of the you know screen share let's see what's possible and then and then we'll you know sort of save a copy and say like this is this is kind of what we we landed on so then what's meeting number 4 Meeting for is investments um, and equity comp. And um, sometimes, I mean, there are many times when meeting for gets moved around. So, you know, if somebody has a liquidity event happening or has already happened, we might move that up, right? So there's some flexibility in the flow, but um, typically it's meeting for where we get to investments. And and so what are you covering in this? I guess even part of it was what's your investment style? Like, is this is this teaching them how you invest in what you do? Is this like, we're trying to understand their situation because we do custom investment portfolios for every client? Like what's what's the actual investment discussion for you? It is very much a discussion. So like most things, I and I say this to people that, you know, at the beginning of that meeting, I say, you know, I don't have prepared recommendations for you today because I don't understand enough about your preferences yet to to provide those. So we really, we go through an IPS together um, with a target, you know, I'll say, this is my initial recommendation based on your risk tolerance questionnaire and, you know, a variety of factors. So I'll say, you know, my suggestion is, you know, an 80-10 allocation and we'll kind of talk that through. But I'll say, you know, this is not set in stone. So if this feels, you know, too risky or too conservative or whatever, I, I want us to have that conversation and we will adjust if that if that is relevant. Um, so it is definitely a conversation, but I'm not really doing a whole lot of custom, you know, portfolio design for people. I would say the portfolios are just very, very simple, passive strategy, 100%. Um, it's just not something that um, I'm trying to differentiate myself in terms of, you know, some kind of creative investment strategy. So then two, two pieces I'm wondering on then one, like, what are you using for risk tolerance to set that conversation up? Um, we use the risk tolerance questionnaire in Precise FP, which is fairly simple, I guess. I mean, I think it's, I don't know, 10 or 12 questions. Okay. Um, I don't really feel that there's a need for, um, you know, these sort of like very complex um, tools that, that a lot of firms use. Um, but again, I mean, it's a starting point, but a lot of times we'll go through that, you know, we'll sort of say, well, this is your score and this puts you in sort of an aggressive or a moderate category. And people will say, well, I didn't even know what those questions meant. Right. And it's like, you know, I mean, you have to, you have to have a conversation with people, I feel, to actually understand what, I mean, these quite, people interpret them in different ways. And so to me, the risk tolerance questionnaire is just a starting point for that conversation. And and then on the investment end, like how are you just building and implementing portfolios and and, and models? Like, is there a, a, a tamp on the back end? Is this software that just automates model management uh yeah. like how do you actually do this uh, when it's when it's only you and an associate yeah i do not have a tamp um or a cio or anything like that or an outsourced cio i would like to um it's just not something that i really want to spend a lot of my time doing it's not what i love 
And so like um, you, you so don't like saying the time on it. You don't want to spend the time to find the person to <laughs> to do um, it. <laughs> Well, yeah, you kind of you're kind of right there. Uh, no, I mean, I it, crossover at some point. <laughs> it's definitely on my agenda of things to okay. to deal with this year, uh, as we are really accumulating more AUM, and it's just you know, it's um, at this point, it's it's relatively straightforward. But I use um, mostly BlackRock models with some modifications. Um, I use Capitect um, for rebalancing and. Bob is the custodian, but it's pretty, it's pretty simple at this point, but I would ultimately like to either outsource that or, you know, just either, or potentially hire somebody that, that is passionate about investing and that does want to take that on more, um, more specifically, because it's just, it's something that, I, you know, I'm fine with um, at the level we're at right now, but as the business grows, I just don't want to spend 20 hours a week on investments. And then what's meeting number five? Meeting number five is kind of everything that we haven't gotten to already. So it's usually insurance and estate planning. Um, but again, it could, you know, could be moved around a little bit depending on what's happening with that person. Or if there's, you know, if there's a need for college planning, that might that might jump um, jump forward or something like that. But typically something like insurance and estate planning and meeting five. And And so how long does it take to go through this whole process? Well, the first four meetings we try to do kind of in the first six months. So that's, you know, usually four to six weeks in between meetings. And then we go to twice a year. So oftentimes we don't really get to meeting five until, you know, maybe eight months of working together or something. It's pretty spread out. And I, I kind of like that. I think almost by design. Um, I don't want, I know a lot of people will do kind of like, oh yeah, a new client, we meet with them, you know, once a week, four weeks in a row or something like that. I think that's way too fast for most people. And I think they lose momentum and, you know, um, it can be very overwhelming. And I I really like to slow it down and, um, you know, kind of go through things at a pace that people can really process in between meetings. And, you know, we can kind of fold things into our work as they come up throughout the year. Um, you know, what, whatever that might be for a particular person, whether it's open enrollment or, you know, other things that are going on in their lives. And I think when you kind of compress it too much, um, I don't know that, that it's as productive long-term. Well, I'm, I'm struck just how you frame that. Like you, you don't want to do it too fast because you're afraid that clients will lose interest and momentum. Uh, I feel like almost everybody else says basically the opposite. Like I, I have to keep it going at a certain speed because if these meetings are too spread out, like clients will lose interest and focus on something else or they'll lose momentum because the meetings are too spaced. So just, I'm, I'm fascinated that you, like you think of it in the 180 degree polar opposite of that. Well, I think because we're doing some of this deeper work with, you know, the kinder process and some of these, these questions that can be quite, um, it can be kind of intense going through that that mm. type of process and those questions and all of that, and especially if it's a couple. Um, I mean, it can be intense as an individual too, but when you've got a couple and, you know, more often than not, they're not, you know, they're different people. So they don't have the exact same uh-huh. answers. They don't have the exact same experience. And really being able to to process and sort of adapt your life, you know, even some of the cash flow conversations that we have with people. I mean, there can be some really significant stuff that comes up and changes that we're recommending. And, um, and there's a lot of emotion tied up in it. And I just think if you compress it too much, it just, I just don't think it's as effective. 
Yeah, I, I'm sure there are plenty of clients for whom that's not the case, but that's that has tended to work relatively well for the people we're working with. I guess I'm also just thinking for some advisory firms, there's, you know, frankly, there's a business model challenge to slowing it down too much, which is if you bill mm-hmm. on assets under management, like you're, there's kind of some pressure to get to that portion of the meeting because mm-hmm. otherwise, <laughs> like you can't invest and then you mm-hmm. like, you don't want to bill until you've invested. You can't invest mm-hmm. until you get through IPS. You can't get mm-hmm. through IPS until you get through that part of the meeting. So that becomes kind of a, a catalyst pressure onto itself. But when you live in this flat fee model world, like you don't have, or like flat fee minimum at least, you don't have that same level of pressure. I guess maybe if eventually their portfolio exceeds the 600, 750 mm-hmm. amount, like the fee will be a little higher when you get to the point that assets are implemented, but you don't have the, uh, you don't live in a world of, I literally can't start billing and start the advisory agreement until the money moves because you've got a planning baseline to this that's covering you through the first one, two, three, mm-hmm. six plus months until they get there anyways. Right. Which, I mean, that also seems wild to me that there would be this, you know, I mean, I don't know, that that doesn't seem like the right way to go about a relationship with a new client is to be like, well, let's just get all your money over here, get it invested, and then we'll talk about everything else. I mean, <laughs> you know, that really does seem pretty backwards to me. I understand it from a business model perspective, but I'm, I'm glad that my structure does not... Um, <sighs> you know, force me to rush into making investments for somebody so that I can start billing um, when I feel like it's really important to have some of these other conversations first. And and so, you know, just the, the like the nerdy technician in me then wonders, like just mechanically, how does billing work until you get mm-hmm. up to that point? Like, is it that they might move dollars earlier and you can bill an account? It's just not advised yet. So you're you're mm-hmm. not putting them onto a model or do you like bill them some other way until they're ready for investments? And then it when there's an account, you might move to a, 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 a billing an, a, an investment account at that point. Yeah, I do charge people 50% of the first year's fee upfront. So if it's 7,500, I bill you 3750 on day one. And that does certainly give us the flexibility of like, yeah, we, we are getting compensated. You know, there's yeah. no rush to move accounts over. And if we don't get to investments until meeting four, that's fine. And there's really no urgency about like, oh, we got to open some Schwab accounts right away. Now, like I said, there are times when maybe somebody just inherited some money. Maybe somebody went through a liquidity event. And there is some urgency about like, what do we do with this cash? In that case, we would definitely move the investment meeting up. Right. And, you know, it still might not happen instantly, right? I still think there's some things that need to be discussed before we start, you know, investing large sums of money. But we can certainly, you know, accommodate a person's, you know, unique circumstances if if we have to. And so upfront fee is just a classic, like they cut the check for $3,750 because they Mm -hmm. tend to have the financial wherewithal to do that Mm -hmm. for the folks that you're working with. Mm -hmm. Does anybody actually have a checkbook anymore? (laughs) I think I've gotten one check Uh in almost three years. Yeah. So then how do you bill it? Um, I use a software or a, a website called Harvest. And okay. um, that is because I come from an hourly world. Um, it's a time tracker, really. And oh, okay. so that's how I started to use it. And I love it. And regardless of whether or not I ever need to bill on an hourly basis again, I think I will always track my time because I think it's endlessly fascinating and, and also very interesting. Um, it, you know, it helps really me understand where my time goes as a business owner. I mean, I just think it's kind of essential um, to really know what what I'm doing with my time. 
Um, but that's that's the software. And then from Harvest, you can send bills, which I believe uses oh, Stripe as the backend processor. Okay, interesting. So it so it started for you as I live in Harvest for time mm-hmm. tracking for my hourly days, so that I can actually bill mm-hmm. the hours that I worked with. Now you don't work on an hourly basis, but you still like tracking your time with Harvest, and you still bill through it. It just so happens that you're not actually billing the time that you track. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I will always use some kind of system like that, I think, because um, I just think it's very easy for me to go back and see exactly how much time I spent on a particular client. I have, you know, lots of notes about what I was doing, whether it was investment related or something else. Um, So it's really easy for me to understand um, where my time is going, how much time I'm spending on on clients versus any other um, business activity. So then how does it work on an ongoing basis? with mm-hmm. with clients like just what are you doing ongoing what what happens in the meetings and or between the meetings that you've got this okay six thousand slash seventy five hundred dollars a year ongoing and you know regulators like to ask what we're doing for that yeah yeah well i mean i still i do track my time like i said i track my time and for the people that don't have um who haven't met that threshold where it crosses over to aum i do still have to demonstrate to the state of Washington that I'm spending that time. So, okay. I mean, I, I do still need to um, to document what I am doing for people. Um, and, and I do report that to them at the end of the year. So I will send them a report that says, you know, this is how much time I spent on, you know, working on your situation. This is where all the hours went and all that kind of thing. Okay. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, after year one, we expect to meet with people at least twice a year. Um, there may be additional meetings, you know, as, as things come up, but sort of a standard two meetings. And we have a, you know, a, a pretty standard service calendar where we're covering, you know, cash flow and tax planning in one and investments and insurance review in another or something like that. Um, and kind of, you know, more or less updating the plan um, throughout the year. And so then where does, I think you said you use Nudge, like where does Nudge mm-hmm. come, come into this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we started using Nudge, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, um, which is just a software that, um, you know, clients, they can create a login, but they don't have to. And if they don't, they will still get reminders. So they'll get reminders by text or email. And I think they can customize which type of, of reminder they would like to get. But it might be even, hey, it's, you know, it's it's April. It's the second half of April. You know, don't forget to upload your tax return. Um, it might be you're due to schedule your next meeting. It might be, you know, don't forget to uh, double check that you're increased your 401k contributions. Um, So those are the sorts of things. And then when people, you know, they get that reminder, they can mark it as complete. And then I also get either a text or an email that tells me so-and-so, you know, has uploaded their tax return or they've, you know, they've increased their 401k contributions. So it's, again, something that um, our clients tend to love. Um, it's pretty simple, but um, I think they really appreciate those those reminders. And, and people, of course, love being able to check something off on a list. So that that has worked really well with our. our so this population. is kind of like a client client task management mm-hmm. kind of kind of system, but but lives in its own world. So you're like not out of CRM, not yes. off your Google site. Right. This is like a separate a separate mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so I mean, you know, I know. I, I kind of hate to add too many tools in, um, but it is a pretty simple one. And people, I mean, people will in a meeting say to us, can you set up a nudge for me? 
about this? And I'll say, yeah, absolutely. So they, I mean, they actively ask us to, um, to create those for them. And some people aren't really that interested and that's fine. You know, I mean, it's not, it's obviously not a requirement that people, that people engage with that. Interesting. So I, so I guess, so when you were saying earlier, like we help clients with implementation, this, this is what you mean. Like you're, you're, you're setting up tasks for them and nudging them on the tasks. Cause I know, I mean, for some parts of the industry, help them with implementation means like, I, when they need insurance, I sell them the insurance. And when they need annuities, I sell them the annuities. <laughs> like that's the follow through implementation. So you're, you're not talking about that kind of implementation. You're talking about like the, the, the tasky, like, mm-hmm. did you schedule with the estate planning attorney? Did you adjust your 401k contribution? Did you change mm-hmm. your withholding? Like the, those kinds of follow through implementation items. Correct. And uh, I mean, taking it one step further, you know, sometimes people will say to us like, oh, I went on the 401k website and I, I couldn't find it or, you know, right. whatever the thing is. And it's like, yeah, let's, let's do that together. So we can do a screen share and, and, and it's usually very quick, you know, but to actually make sure that people are doing the thing um, that we, that we recommended. So, I mean, I think the nudge is a nice way to remind people, but we will actually get on the phone or get on a, you know, screen share or whatever we need to do to make sure that those things are really happening. And so any particular reason why you ended up with nudge versus just, I see some advisors trying to do this with like task management systems. So, you know, MeisterTask mm-hmm. and Trello and such. Some yeah. are trying to push it through planning software tools that at least are are starting to create some pieces of this. Like I'm presuming you, you sought out or chose nudge for a reason or didn't choose the others for a reason. So what, mm-hmm. what led you there as a solution? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I don't know that the project management tools are quite the way that I want to interface with clients. Like I don't really want to drive them to yet another, there's already so many systems that we already have. Right. And what I like about nudge is they don't have to create a login if they don't, they can, okay. if they want to see all the nudges in one place, but they can still get those reminders by text or email. They can still mark them complete without having to create any kind of profile. Um, Mm. And I do really like their pricing model. (laughs) I think you get, I think it's 12 or 13 um, clients for free. And so we just tried it. I mean, we used it for a while with, you know, a a handful of our clients and just said, well, let's just try it, see how it goes. It was obviously it was free, so we didn't have to make any kind of commitment and people were really liking it. So it was like, all right, well, I guess we'll, we'll convert over to the paid the paid version. So what do you envision is the capacity overall for the the model as you've you've created? I think you said, you know, you're like you're cresting 40 clients now mm-hmm. in the in the model you've got an associate advisor with you, but you said like you do feel like you've got some capacity at this level. So how yeah. how do you think about capacity as you're building this? I I mean, I don't really know. I would probably guess around 60 um give or take, but you know, ask me in a, a year or two if that still feels reasonable, but that's that's kind of what what I'm expecting will be capacity. And I do intend to grow. So I, I have no intention of getting to 60 and saying, okay, I'm done. Um, okay. You know, when I get to that point, I will absolutely, um, well, or probably before that, I would I would plan to hire and, and expand okay. the team. Okay. So, so that's a kind of a 60 per advisor and you'll add advisors over time mm-hmm. at, these, at these levels is the goal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, that's my plan. So as you look back on this journey, like what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? 
Um, I mean, the fact that I'm here <laughs> at all <laughs> is definitely a surprise. Um, I did not, uh, you know, as we said at the beginning, did not plan this for a long time. It was not something I ever expected. And to be here and to see how much, um, you know, my business has changed and evolved and how much I personally have changed and evolved over the last three years is really just so far out of the realm of what I expected. Um, so that's been a huge um, surprise to me is just, I don't know what I was capable of. I had no idea. <laughs> so what what changed and evolved for you? I mean, I got like the business piece. So like, you know, the business changed and evolved and you personally changed and evolved. Like what changed mm-hmm. for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the whole process of going through the audit at my last firm and just that that experience where I really had to do some soul searching and some examination of, you know, what, what do I want in this career and, and what, what am I really looking for? Um, and, and, and through the process of, of then launching, I think it just really unlocked something in me that I I did not know was there. Um, I was a very happy and content, you know, kind of financial planner worker at my old job. And now I just feel so passionate and driven and curious. And, you know, there's just so much more to learn. And I, I just, it really changed something in me that, um, that I didn't, I had no idea was there. So I, I think the bigger, um, lesson for me was really just around how much we're capable of when we are forced to kind of get outside of our comfort zone. And I just, I don't ever want to stop this part of the journey that I'm on where I'm just growing and expanding and changing. Um, I don't ever want to get to a place of being comfortable again, because, um, you know, just the amount of change and development I've seen in three years, it's like, oh my gosh, if I'd started this when I was in my twenties, like, where would I be today? (laughs) So, so, so what what changes that like you were you said like I was a happy worker before, but I'm just so much more curious and energized now. Like what changed? What flipped? Um, you know, I went one of the things that I did after I launched my firm was I started the the, the Kinder training, so the, through the Kinder Institute, and I went. One of the things that you do when you're going through that training is you somebody does life plan you, so you get life planned. And when I went through that process, it really, it, that, that really did change something in me where it was like, okay, you know, I could just continue on and build this very nice business and however many clients and have a good income. And I was like, that's not enough. That is not enough for me. I know that there is more that I'm here to do. I want to do more. And, um, it just really, it lit something up inside of me that was, um, I think it was there, but I, I didn't realize that it was there. And so really going through the kinder process, I think, put me more in touch with um, with that pa- real passion that I feel now that I just never felt before. I, I mean, I liked financial planning. I thought it was a great job. I really, I was very, I think I was good at it, but I feel it, it's just so much more um tied to what I feel my life's purpose is now in a way that it was never, it was never anything profound at all in my prior firm. So what was the low point for you as you went through this launch and building over the past couple of years? I mean, I would know it was a low point at the prior firm that like led you to, <laughs> to do this, but like yeah. since you took that leap and transition, yeah. like what's been the low point as you've been 
building through this? Yeah, I mean, I was prepared for this question, but I, I definitely would have said the low point was the actual audit process. But I think since I've launched, the low point was probably realizing how lonely this is. So, I mean, I love what I'm doing and there's so many things that um, I would not trade, you know, this current version of what I'm doing for anything, but I do find running a business to be very lonely. And, um, you know, I've definitely found ways to, to cope with that. You know, there's lots of communities that I'm plugged into. I'm in multiple masterminds. You know, I really, I have a lot of support, but I do find this sort of business owner, um, role to be particularly lonely and, um, something that ultimately I don't really want to do alone. So, you know, longer term, one of my, one of my, um, intentions is definitely to work with a business partner. So share with us a little bit more just what what you've been doing to cope, as you said, mm-hmm. like what what have you found or done that makes this more manageable and less lonely? Yeah, I think, you know, um, just really plugging into the the communities that are there already. I mean, they're they're amazing. And, um, you know, you get out of them kind of what you put in is my feeling. And so I'll hear people complain about whether it's XYPN or NAPFA or some other community. Oh, I, I get nothing for that membership. It's like, well, what do you, what do you actually put into it? Um, and so by, you know, whether it's volunteering on the NAPFA board or showing up for conversation circles or participating in, you know, any number of meetups or anything like that, um, I've, I have put a lot into um, into building up my community through those avenues. And, um, and I just have so many people in my network now that I didn't know three years ago. Um, and so I feel very, um, like I, I just have a lot of resources, I guess. So there's so many other people I now know who are dealing with, you know, many of the same things that I'm dealing with, whether it's, you know, business growth or, client acquisition or, you know, any number of things. Um, and so it's just a really nice place to be. Um, Twitter, you know, is another place where I've just found so many um, connection, really profound <laughs> relationships that I have with people um, that I didn't know three years ago. So I've, I've definitely that, made a pretty conscious effort to cultivate that. That you find on Twitter, just tweet, tweeting about, as it were. Twitter, Twitter, NAFA, and XYPN are probably my three primary outlets for a community. And I think you also said multiple masterminds. So where did those mm-hmm. come from? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the masterminds I'm in is, I think we're all XY. Yeah, all XY people, all at relatively similar stages of business. So we're, you know, somewhere between two and five years of um, being established, generally in a pretty high growth mode. Um, that one's great. I'm in one that's just about equity compensation. And so that's also been really helpful just for, um, you know, being able to rely on other professionals who are dealing with similar problems. Um, yeah, so I think those are the two I'm in right now. I've been in others, um, over the last three years and sort of come in, you know, in and out of different groups that have, have served my needs at different times. It's interesting you've come in and out of them. Just I feel like a lot of advisors I hear from say like I, I find my study group and I've been in it for nine years. <laughs> and like like you know like once once you're in you're you're in and you cannot leave the circle. Uh, so just, I'm I'm struck by you just you seem to have a much more flexible attitude around it. Of like I'm in when it's valuable for me to be in, and then I'm not when it's not. 
Yeah, I think I'm like that with a lot of stuff around business. I think I'm very, and I don't do this from like a, oh, there's, I'm not getting ROI on my time or anything like that, but just being very um, practical and very, um, uh, I don't know if it's totally about self-awareness, but, you know, is this still serving me? Um, and you know, I, I take that through a lot of areas of running my business where it's like, okay, this, this particular task or this particular thing, like, you know, I'm not getting a lot out of this. I don't enjoy it. Can I outsource it? I mean, I take that to a lot of different areas of how I move through the world where it's like, this, this really isn't providing much benefit to my life anymore. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to be pretty easy with that sort of thing. And I, and I don't think anyone takes it personally. Like I'll say to the group, you know, this has been great. I really appreciate all of your insights, et cetera, but I think it's time for me to move on. How do you find the groups in the first place to get going? So I find for a lot of advisors like, yeah, that sounds great. I don't mm-hmm. know where to find that. Mm-hmm. I think, like I said, I think both of the ones I'm in now did originate from XYPN. Um, I have been in NAPFA mixed groups before, which I've also gotten a lot out of. Um, I think also the other thing is if you want a mixed group or a mastermind group, create one. Like there's no reason why you can't. And my, um, the woman that works for me on my team, Mariana is an associate advisor. And, you know, she and I had a similar conversation at some point and she said, well, I'm not in XY and I'm not in NAPFA. Like, how do I find something like this? And she went out and created one. So she is now in a mastermind with, you know, the associate from Meg's firm and the associate from Scott Frank's firm. And, and they all work for these really similar life planning firms. And she has told me multiple times, like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I would do without this mastermind of all these associate advisors. We're all, you know, working towards our CFP and it's just amazing to have that kind of support. So if you don't see something out there that, you know, that's already like what you want, create, you know, put something out there, post it on a message board, post it in a Facebook group. Hey, I want to create a group. Like who's interested? So what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you three, three or four years ago uh, when you were thinking about the launch and terrified of going out on your own. <laughs> yes, yes. I often wonder if if I had known, you know, when I say like I didn't know that I could that I could do this. I often wonder if I would have done this sooner, you know, would I have just launched a firm right out of the gate when I was getting into the industry or would I have really taken the leap much sooner? And I don't know that I would have. I mean, I think in many ways I just kind of had to go through it the way that I did. I don't know if I would have been ready to do um, to do what I did any sooner than, than when it actually happened. But it, I mean, I certainly, I guess I would probably just tell myself it's going to be okay. And you are perfectly capable of doing this. Um, but yeah, aside from that, I, I just don't know that I would have even, even now, you know, seeing how successful and how relatively straightforward things have, have been, I don't know that I really would have taken the leap any sooner. So any other advice you would give younger, newer advisors that are Who's coming into the industry today and getting started? Uh, I think for new people, I mean, I definitely recommend getting involved with the local FPA or NAPFA chapter. That has just been so critical to my development as a planner. Um, and the other thing is really to just find your people, you know, however however you can. But if you're kind of doing this in isolation, um, I just think it's it's that much more lonely. Um, I, I never had a formal mentor-mentee relationship, but I would have liked that. But if you can find something like that, I think that's amazing. Um, And if you can't, maybe it's more of a mastermind type thing. But I think finding people that are like-minded 
and, um, you know, at a similar career stage and all of that is um, extremely valuable. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that always comes up is the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so you're you're on this wonderful now fast growth pass with the firm right, to north of $275,000 of revenue in three years, which is like an amazing uh, growth engine out of the gate. So the business is going well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? For me, I think there's a couple aspects to that. One is really about having a meaningful impact on the industry, which we didn't talk about at all, but really important to me to um, to kind of give back and to move this industry forward in terms of you know DEI efforts and just having more representation of different types of people in the industry. So that's really, really one of my top priorities. And then the other thing that we did talk a lot about is sort of this, I don't know, growth mindset, um, curiosity that, that I have now, which I, I really didn't have several years ago, and I don't ever want that to go away. So whatever I can do to maintain this um, this interest and um, curiosity about the world, I just want to I want to stay in that frame of mind as long as I possibly can. Very cool. Uh, I love that. Obviously, I'm a big fan of the curiosity growth mindset <laughs> as well. So I I appreciate that. Well. Thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.